This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Lawrence Block. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. That's a good question. <laughs> I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types with Eric Beatner and S.W. Louder. Welcome, everyone. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. And Steve, we've been up to our old shenanigans again, talking with more crime and mystery authors. Tell them who we have today. Today, Samuel Gailey makes a very dark confession. I didn't return a library book to my public library, and I feel terrible about that. And Jessica Berry drops some uncomfortable truth. I mean, America, I have to say, is light years ahead of the UK on the snack front. I mean, absolutely hands down. Plus, we ask Angel Luis Colon if he'll ever endorse this podcast to his fans. Nah, I can't do that. I, I, gotta, I gotta, like, you know, live up to my reputation and still be like, no, sorry. And we hear from our reviewers, the Malmans. All that is brought to you by our sponsor, Prospect Park Books. Some Prospect Park titles listeners would enjoy include The Ugly Truth by Jill Orr, The Big Con by Adam Walker Phillips, and Mothers and Other Strangers by Gina Sorrell. Those books and more can be found at prospectparkbooks.com. Well, Steve, we have the Malmans coming up a little later to recommend some books for us. So let's you and I talk about what's been entertaining you uh, outside of the book world. You know, Eric, I've recently gotten hooked on this Netflix show called Russian Doll. Have you heard about it? I've heard a lot about it. People were talking about it. Uh, I was intrigued by some of the people involved. uh, But I have to say, I tried it out and was not a fan. Well, that's really interesting because uh, I kind of assumed that you would love it. It has a lot of the pedigree that I should have loved it. And for me, it all came down to the characters. It was filled with a bunch of people that I found uh, terribly unlikable. But in the crime and mystery world, it's it's interesting because so many of the characters are unlikable. Um, are these just people you would not hang out with or that you don't believe? I think it's it is a tricky tightrope to walk because in crime fiction, that's uh, so many books get accused of that. Like, oh, I didn't like this book. All, everyone was so despicable. And a lot of the characters that I write fall into that category. I, you know, write about bad people doing bad things. But I don't know if it was just these sort of uh, hipster New Yorkers taking a lot of drugs, uh, having casual sex in a way that I both didn't relate to and then kind of didn't respect. And I think a lot of times in crime fiction, I, I, like I always hold up uh, like Richard Stark's Parker is kind of the ultimate character of like, he's a terrible guy doing terrible things, but he functions by his own moral code. So within his version of the world, he is on sort of a righteous path. But this one uh, just, just didn't hook me. I don't know. I'm probably wrong. You're in the minority. That's for sure. I'm not sure you're wrong. Well, for, for our listeners who have not actually seen the show yet, uh, it was created by Natasha Leone, Leslie Headland, and uh, most surprisingly to me, Amy Poehler. It's about a woman named Nadia Volbakov who repeatedly dies on the night of her 36th birthday party. And it's, in my estimation, is sort of a very dark and depraved take on the Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, Definitely. Right off the bat, I give the thing extra points for the repeated and liberal use of uh, Harry Nilsson's Gotta Get Up from his album Nilsson Schmilson, because I just, I love his music, but to see it used in the way that it's used in this show, I just love it. You love a deep cut. <laughs> the show's set in modern day New York, but you were describing the depravity and the casual sex and the drug use. And so 
I, I think it has a real distinct 70s sort of Lou Reed boho New York vibe going for it. I mean, that's right up my alley. And I, I think it's a really entertaining show. And I'm, oh, I'm only four episodes in out of eight. And this is sort of like my favorite place to be in a show like this because I'm invested, but I still have four episodes to go. And so I, I got to be careful not to binge all four tonight. Well, you've convinced me to maybe take another look at it. Maybe I'll, I'll try another one and see if I can uh, look at it with a different perspective. I just think it's really great. I hope I hope you give it another shot. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. <laughs> Was that too passive aggressive? God knows exactly your feature. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Steve, we are not the only crime and mystery fiction podcast out there. What? <laughs> it's surprising, I know. And I know some listeners might hear our short interviews with authors and want more of a deep dive into some classic crime fiction. Our friends over at Point Blank Podcast are there to scratch that itch. But you know what? We'll let them tell you about it. Can't get enough crime fiction? Join us at Point Blank, where we haunt the mean streets and back alleys of noir and hard-boiled fiction. Each episode, we explore a classic or contemporary novel, diving deep into the narrative and the author. Past episodes have featured the likes of Jim Thompson, Dorothy Hughes, Chester Himes, and Megan Abbott. Upcoming episodes will feature Cormac McCarthy, Ernest Hemingway, and a 10-episode trip around the world as we explore global noir. Check out Point Blank, hard-boiled noir and detective fiction. Available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So check them out on the off chance that Steve and I are not enough for you. We won't be jealous of you listening to someone else once in a while. We can share. You know, like we're, we're, we're like podcast swingers, Steve. I thought you didn't like that kind of sex, Eric. You just said that in the previous segment about Russian doll. <laughs> Listen, we've all done our time throwing your keys in the bowl. It's just part of LA culture. Why were you throwing my keys in the bowl? That explains so much. <laughs> Well, Steve, there's a new book out by an author who has quickly become one of my favorites. Samuel Gailey's latest is called The Guilt We Carry, and I can tell you it is excellent. Uh, we talked to Sam just after we joined him for a few readings during his book tour in L.A. We promised not to give him any crap about taking five years between books, but eh, that promise didn't last long. Well, it's been five years between books for you. Uh, so does this make you a very, very thoughtful writer or a very lazy writer? Is there somewhere in between? <laughs> I certainly didn't anticipate uh, a five-year gap in between uh, Deep Winter and this one. So it's uh, I took a few little curves, but um, my French publisher, Gullmeister, he just went with it, you know? So that was published actually a year ago. So. That uh, had French life before it had uh, life here in the U.S. Wow. So uh, your protagonist from The Guilt We Carry, Alice O'Farrell, has a dark past that uh, she uses alcohol to forget. Yes. But everything changes when she finds a bag full of cash. So yes. what came first when you conceived of this story, her dark past or the present day action in the novel? The character evolved. I knew I wanted to have this young kid um, have something tragic happen in her past when she was 15. And as a result of that, she self-medicated and started to drink heavily. And really, the story picks up six years later when she's pretty much homeless. 
And then from there, I wanted her to think that she had an out. You know, when she finds this money, she thinks maybe this is going to get her up on her feet, which it doesn't really help matters that much. But finding a bag of money always works out. I've never found the money. Let me know if you guys find money. <laughs> well, I want to hear about the research that you did into Alice's heavy, heavy drinking. And, and and she she ranks her uh, hangovers with this number system that sounded uh, very familiar, like like maybe that was already something that was in your life. Yeah, I, I had to go deep in research on that one. So um, luckily, my uh, family background and some personal history gave me the tools to uh, understand degrees of drinking and hangovers. That's the thing with the, if you have a writer in the family, everything is fair game, right? That's right. I don't use their names. I just they're we're all composite characters, I guess, right? Yeah. I don't use their names. I just use their terrible habits. <laughs> well, so the New York Journal described the guilt we carry as the breaking bad of the book world. When you hear a review like that, what's the first thought you have? Well, when it's it sounds catchy like that, I was very, very pleased. The Breaking Bad of the book world. I mean, how <laughs> pretty cool. After I got over the glow of how neat it sounds, I think it was just more the comparison of maybe our protagonists, these everyday people that um, have tragic news that affects their lives and how it sets them down a different path and a little bit of the drug world from both, you know, that TV show and then in my book as well. Sam, I've, I've seen your writing compared to Cormac McCarthy, and you've been called country noir uh, for some of your writing. Uh, do you think about genre much when you write? You know, maybe subconsciously. It's just um, the types of books that I read, I think, definitely inform me. You know, since I was raised in this very small town in northeastern Pennsylvania, it was like less than 400 people. You know, I think where we grew up definitely informs the type of stories that we might want to tell, at least that it did for me. So, you know, we all had guns in the back of our cars and we didn't lock our doors and um, every, most people were farmers. And um, so it's definitely uh, the country noir um, speaks to me. And, you know, one of my favorite authors, Larry Brown, he was, I guess, would be considered, you know, country noir from Mississippi. So I don't know if I'm totally aware of it, but it's, it's like it's what I like to read for sure. Well, you just got back from uh, a little book tour. I, I want to know, do you like touring? Do you like getting out there and uh, and interacting with the readers? You know, I do. Do you think that you would have done well uh, playing in a band and like hopping in the van and getting out and touring clubs? Absolutely not. That would be a complete failure. <laughs> Join the club, buddy. <laughs> Maybe we should go on the road together. I'm, I'm sure, you know, at this point in your career, you're not, you know, keeping a tally, but how many TVs did you throw out hotel room windows on this most recent <laughs> West Coast tour? Well, I'm not a very strong man, so I can't really lift television so well. <laughs> Kleenex boxes I can handle, I think. Washington author arrested for tossing Kleenex box out hotel room window. <laughs> on a rampage. <laughs> Well, you, uh, Sam, you you, re you used to live down here in the rat race in Los Angeles with the rest of us, uh, yeah. but you you relocated up to the Pacific Northwest in uh, what, what from the photos I've seen, is a rather idyllic location. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you think this has had any effect on, on your writing? You know, there's definitely a lot less distractions here. So, and I, I, I like to write outside and, you know, when you just look out the window, 
it's it's kind of impossible not to be inspired. So maybe at some point, uh, one of my stories will take place on a very remote island in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. But do you, do you feel like you've come full circle? I mean, you grew up in a really tiny town. You you've lived in big metropolises and you've you've toured as a writer, but you've retreated to sort of this isolation. Do you think that's just sort of in your bones? Yeah, I, I definitely. I've made that comment to some friends of mine that I feel like I've come back home. You know, it's it's a, an island of like two thousand people, and there's no traffic lights, there's no chain stores. Yeah, I do. I do feel like I'm home, and I think especially this kind of weather. I, I like Pacific Northwest weather because it's, you know, you get some rain, you get some snow, you get some different uh, elements. And um, I think this is where I belong. Nice. It's, it's noir weather, right? It's always kind yeah. of broody and gray. <laughs> so the guilt we carry, uh, obviously it's right there in the title that uh, Alice is carrying this heavy burden with her. But what I really want to know is uh, it, now is the chance for you, Sam, to unburden yourself with anything that's been plaguing you with guilt for all these years. Go ahead and share it now with the listeners. I think it, I was around 12 at the time. And I didn't return a library book to my public library. Oh, my God. Jeez. And I still have it in my garage. And I, I feel ter terrible about that. Wow. St you, and you, kept, you didn't destroy the evidence? No, you can't destroy a book. You know, you got to... <laughs> You got to carry the book with you. So there's probably some therapist somewhere that would tell you it's very telling that you have carried this with you. You're unwilling to let go of the guilt. Yeah, we carry it with us. You know, you have to. It all comes full circle. What What book is it? Um, I think it's actually a Hardy Boys book, which is embarrassing. That's um, not embarrassing. That's not embarrassing at all. That's <laughs> foundational. We're not angry. We're just disappointed. I see. Well, that, <laughs> I've heard those words spoken to me many times. <laughs> I just want to know how big a bag of cash has to be to cover the library fines from a 30-year-old book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really hope we didn't just get Sam in trouble with the library police. I kind of hope we did. I mean, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. <laughs> well, Steve, uh, I have a philosophical question for you now. Shoot. When is a debut novel not a debut novel? When you cannot get it at the library because Samuel Gailey's had it for 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> is there another option? Oh, yes. When it's not your first book, but it is the first one under a new pen name. And that's exactly what Jessica Berry has done with her new thriller, Freefall. The book is getting high praise, so we had to call her up at her home in London where you know our connection was not always the best, but give us a break. She was 5,437 miles away. But who's counting? I am. I looked it up. That is an actual number. Jessica, you're an American, but you live in England. Yeah. So what's the most surprising thing you've encountered living abroad? Oh, um, the most surprising thing I've encountered living abroad, it took me a really long time to realize that um, when British people greet you and say, are you all right? For the first like several years that I lived here, I would be like, yeah, I'm fine in a sort of defensive way. And then I realized they were just saying hi. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't because you, you thought, oh, my God, I, I left the house looking terrible. I, I look so yeah, it's like. What are you saying? Am I not fine? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, right off the bat here in talking to you, we're, we're already in mystery territory because we know that Jessica Berry is not your real name. And we're not going to try to out you or anything here, but we want to know, did taking on a, a new persona, was was that a help in writing a new genre for you? Yeah, it was in a way. I found it, it's funny, because now I've had stuff come out under my own name and then stuff come out under the pseudonym under Jessica Berry. And I'm finding that the pseudonym is a little bit easier for me psychologically. Like, I think I wanted the break anyway between, because the stuff I wrote under my um, own name was straight like chiclet. And so having that break felt important. It gives me like a bit of distance that I'm enjoying. Like it doesn't feel quite as personal. It means it's not quite, it's, you know, painful if it doesn't go well, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> a little buffer, a little shield. A little buffer. <laughs> yes. Well, Jessica Berry's debut novel, Free Fall, was inspired by a news story about a young girl who survived a plane crash and then walked for two days to find help. Uh, what is it about that story that captured your imagination? It was this idea that somebody could survive both physical and emotional trauma and continue to try to survive. So the story was she was on a plane with her grandparents. Her grandparents were the ones who were flying the plane and they died in the crash. And so she went through this traumatic thing where obviously she's in a plane crash, incredibly traumatic. Her grandparents have died in the crash, very traumatic. And then she's in the middle of nowhere. I think that in my head, I was like, I think my impulse would have been to just curl up and give up, you know, and the idea that she at that age was like, I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep going for two days and two nights. She had like hypothermia when they picked her up and she still was like, no, I'm going to do it and sh until she hit a road and flagged down a car. And I just thought that, that was a really interesting thing to explore. Wow. I mean, it's such an intriguing story with this woman lost in the wilderness, but then at the same time, her mother thousands of miles away is trying to do what she can to help from a distance. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't enough for the story. And you have to go and give the daughter, Allison, a, a deep, dark secret. So <laughs> <laughs> what's, uh, was that always a part of the story? Or did you feel like, oh, I need this extra layer? I definitely need, I felt that there needed to be an extra layer. So to be perfectly honest, the first probably two drafts of the book were just like, woman in wilderness struggling to survive and then mother grieving. And that was it. It was just like survival and grief, survival and grief. It's <laughs> like, you need more than just survival and grief. It's not really, it's not actually a plot. So Allison's kind of backstory came much later in the process. Well, the tagline for the book is when your life is a lie, the truth can kill you. But now you're not even using your real name. Are you living a lie? <laughs> I very well may be, yes. <laughs> I wish, that sounds like much more exciting than my actual life, which is like, I go to a day job, it's good, I sit at a desk, then you know, sit here at a laptop and try to write a book and feel tortured. So I think maybe living a lie, a lie seems a little bit more glamorous than the reality. Well, <laughs> as writers know, it, your past always catches up with you. Those lies always get exposed. <laughs> it's true. Not yet, though. <laughs> we haven't asked all our questions yet. Stay tuned. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well. 
So now, uh, picturing you at your day job, I like to imagine you, you know, kind of sneaking off and doing Google searches about plane crashes and survivalism <laughs> in the wilderness. And I have to imagine you did a lot of research to make it uh, believable. Yeah, my Google history was. I mean, red flags all over the place. I think if anybody had looked into it, they'd be like, "She seems like she's planning something." <laughs> and I also have books like the SAS Survival Guide, just not a book I ever thought that I was going to buy, but it was actually really interesting. <laughs> have you developed any phobias about flying? No, I haven't, which is really strange. Now, Steve, this is one of those times when our connection cut out for a second. But uh, the thing that she did say was that she went and talked to a pilot about these fears that she had. So let's pick it back up there. And so I was asking him about what causes a plane to crash and all that kind of stuff. And he was actually really, really reassuring because he was basically like, like so many things have to go wrong in order for a plane to actually crash. Like weirdly, the research I did made me feel a little bit safer. So yeah, that's probably cursed me <laughs> saying that out loud, but for now I feel okay about flying. <laughs> Overconfidence will uh, will doom anyone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My kids have a very strong opinion about book covers when I bring anything new mm. into the house, and they were very intrigued by this one. The cover, you know, oh, with, it's got the vertical text, and it, it's it looks it looks very intriguing. But the UK cover is very different. Mm. So we're going to put you on the spot. Do you have a preference? Yeah, I do. I like the U.S. cover better. Oh. <laughs> Don't tell my U.K. publisher. <laughs> I think it's just I. I think that the U.K. covers tend to be more like literal. I think they feel like they have to, you know, really show what kind of genre it is a little bit more, and the U.S. is a little bit more nuanced. So yeah. Well, your secret's safe here. Yeah, we're not going to tell. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's all this whole interview's been a lie. <laughs> yes. All right. So you live in the UK, and I presume mm -hmm. that you're going to do a book tour in the US. The plane touches down safely in America. What's the first junk food that you grab that you can't get in the UK? It, it wasn't around actually when I lived in the US, so I only now get to have. I didn't have it growing up, but M and M's have like started doing those like peanut M&Ms, but pretzels and peanuts, and it's just the best thing. I mean, America, I have to say, is light years ahead of the UK on the snack front. That's, <laughs> I mean, absolutely hands down. Although my husband disagrees because he loves like, the UK are very creative in their potato chip flavorings. So they love like a weird roast beef potato chip with Worcestershire sauce and all sorts of stuff. So he's always a little bit disappointed when he comes to the U.S. by the potato chip aisle. But I'm I'm in heaven with the M&Ms. Yeah, your uh, your husband's not going to find oxtail flavored crisps in America. No, and that's correct. That's how it should be. <laughs> Well, it's been way too long since we've heard from our book reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. So we had them send in a report from the center of the polar vortex in Minnesota. This is Dan Melman And Kate Melman, And we are coming to you live pre-recorded from the frozen wastelands of Minnesota, where it is so cold. How cold is it? Remember that scene in Christmas Story? Where the little brother puts on the snowsuit. Yeah. Can't put his arms down. Yeah. 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 That's how cold it is. It's really cold. Yeah. 
So today, we're gonna to talk about a couple of books that we've read recently, and we wanted to tell you about. Okay, so I've been talking about how excited I was to read Steph Post's new book, Miraculum, and the book completely lives up to the hype. It's set in the early 1920s in a carnival in the South, and a stranger joins the carnival, things go sideways, that's when the story starts. Steph Post uh, hooked me with her rural noir novels, and uh, she proves that she can write something completely different with her magical realism. And in reading the book, I found that I really enjoy, if I'm going to read fantasy, I want it based in reality. So I want it based in the world that I know now, and then throw the magic in there. For example, there are two different types of Muppet movies. There's the Muppet movies, where the Muppets are in Muppet land, and then there are mo the movies where the Muppets are in people land. My favorite movies are where the Muppets are in people land. Steph Post totally wrote a Muppet in people land book, and it's great. That sounds awesome. It is. Yeah. I'm going to talk about uh, Skin Game. Skin Game is by a new-to-me author, J.D. Allen. This is a very traditional hard-boiled noir type story. The action takes place in Las Vegas. Just like a lot of, uh, we're seeing a lot of stories come out of Miami where we're used to seeing the glitz and the glamour and the sunshine and the beautiful people, these stories take place in the shadowy underbelly. Um, and that's, that's a vibe I can really get behind. Um, in Skin Game, our hero protagonist is Jim Bean, probably the best PI name I've come across yet. Jim Bean um, is that uh, grumpy, drinks too much, lives alone with his cat kind of guy, which also really talks to me. Except, you don't have a cat? No, no. If, if he had a, a Boston Terrier, I would really be sold. Bean used to uh, live in Columbus, Ohio, and he was uh, on the fast track to the FBI Academy. Um, turns out when he was going to school, he was accused of uh, kidnapping and assault. No one believed him. No one stood by his side, including um, his girlfriend at the time. Fast forward eight years later, he's uh, hung his shingle outside of his office and he's setting up shop in Las Vegas. While on stakeout, who does he happen to see walk right up to the front door of the deadbeat that he's uh, surveilling, but his ex-girlfriend from Columbus. Her sister has disappeared. And as they get on the trail of the missing sister, they realize that the real villains in the story are the human traffickers. Um, this is a dark story um, with heavy real-world consequences, um, and I really, really enjoyed it. Alan does a great job of, of balancing those traditional PI tropes with real-world contemporary consequence. It's the second book in a series. The first book was called 19 Souls, and I think everybody should check it out. That's what we're reading to stay warm in frozen, frozen Minnesota. We hope next time we'll be coming to you from someplace warmer. We look forward to talking to you guys again. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Well, thanks, Dan and Kate. Try to stay warm out there. You know, Angel Luis Colon has been a fixture on the crime fiction scene for a while now, Steve. He's got dozens of short stories and four novellas to his name. But now his long-awaited debut novel, Hell Chose Me, has arrived, and we say it's about damn time. Angel, we have to start with the most obvious question. How the hell is this your debut novel? Isn't that weird? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like I've been reading your stuff for a decade. Yeah, like I've been around forever at this point. Um, I, I just, I never found anything that kind of felt uh, 
quite right for that length. I'm a person that kind of started with flash and short, but you know, I, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I, I have an obsession with word economy. I'm not a big fan of writing over 70,000 words. So this was like the, one of the rare times that I did. And I mean, I think, even, I think even this one, like everybody's saying it's a short novel. I think it's just a hair under 200 pages. It's 199. You couldn't have squeezed out an extra page? Nah, I can't do that. I, I got I to gotta like, you know, live up to my reputation and still be like, no, sorry. I'm not <laughs> 200 just yet. You know, after the four novellas that had come before, is the task of going a little bit longer, I mean, is it really even that much different or is it just this story took a little longer to tell? It wasn't like you had to fight to get those extra words on the page, right? Well, actually, for this one, I think when I first finished it, I think I finished it with maybe 55,000 words. Oh. And a couple of people were like, that's not a novel. I'm like, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> I tell that to James Cain. Crap, you know? Um, <laughs> but for this one, I, I think it was, um, it gave me an opportunity to kind of dig into the characters a little more. So I did, I was able to derive some like more chapters that really flesh things out, at least for me. It took me a while to learn how to stretch the legs of a story without it feeling like filler, right? Because it very, you could so easily fall into that trap. And I, I'm always desperate to ensure I'm not doing that. You know, even if it's that, you know, I like describing things in scenes, but normally I'm very I pared down. I don't tell you what a room looks like. I don't tell you what pants look like. I don't tell you these things. Unless I feel like it makes sense to the story. Pop quiz, hot shot. Uh, what do the pants you're wearing right now look like? Uh, they are checkerboard. I'm cool. sorry. The correct yeah. answer was I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I, we, you forgot he, he's in a ska band. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just read a blog post you wrote for Do Some Damage uh, where you kind of talk about your approach to novel writing and that you came from short stories. And this quote stood out to me, which is you said, I've never believed the novel to be a natural form of storytelling. That's pretty heavy. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I always look at things like oral tradition. I mean, whenever you've been told stories, when people used to sit around fires hiding from bears or whatever the hell they did, the stories were meant to either entertain, to ease, and more often than not, you know, I read to my own kids. I don't read my kids a whole novel in one night. I read them a part of the story. You, you know, you... you go through things in increments and we ingest things in increments. So I've always felt like the most natural form of storytelling is short storytelling. Well, I'm, I'm hiding from a bear right now, so I guess you're totally right. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally agree. I, I've, I'm a big fan of, of shorter novels and I, I see people, you know, posting like their progress and someone will say, oh, just crossed over the 100,000 mark, you know, two thirds of the way done. And I'm like, yeah. oh, God, what are you I'm like, are you a maniac? <laughs> <laughs> so many words to edit later on, too. <laughs> so at what point did you come up with what I think might be the best book title ever? Hell, oh, hell shows me. Oh, God. I, I owe that all to um, a terrible band that a friend of mine was a drummer for. You know, like they were like a death metal band. And I, I went to a gig years ago and the lead singer looked no older than 11 years old. Like he, he looked like a baby. Um, and we were kind of cracking up laughing because, you know, he's like, rah, 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 you know, doing the whole spiel. <laughs> and I can't stop laughing because it looks like a child is doing this. And in between every song, he's just like vomiting out random non sequiturs for no good reason. And at one point, he's like, you know, God damn my life. Hell chose me. And I'm, we're dying laughing because I'm like, is he old enough to say these things? One day I was writing this book and um, there's a chapter where uh, the character's grandfather mentions, you know, how sometimes hell comes calling and sometimes hell chooses you. And I was like, oh, yeah. 
that's a great title for a book. I, you know, everything came back. I was like, hell chose me. Yes, we're going to do that. <laughs> well, so given that uh, you have this deep personal connection to this title, I, I want you to tell us what is uh, sort of the number one reason why hell is going to choose you? Because you know you're going there. Oh, yeah. I think, I think it's just probably laziness. <laughs> <laughs> the sin of sloth. Yeah, it's just like, ah, oh, you you just, you had so many opportunities to just do something. You're like, yeah, I just need this pizza on the floor and drink a beer. <laughs> well, save me a seat when you get there. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> now, when I go to the shelf and I'm reaching for a, a, a tough, hard-nosed crime novel about a hitman... I might be surprised to find a bright pink book yep. <laughs> staring back at me. What, what led to this unconventional choice in covers? I, I mean, Hell Chose Me, first and foremost, is a bit of a love letter to like, you know, guys like Lawrence Block, um, Westlake, you know, the, the characters that they created, sort of perfect tough guy bastards. And I just thought it would be A, hysterical, but B, to juxtapose that concept with a bright, bright pink cover with that title with a pig on there for no apparent reason. I, I liked the idea of how that would just confuse the hell out of people. That was mainly it. Like, how, how do I confuse people with this and, and make them kind of kind of understand that, yeah, I've written something that is going to be familiar, but with enough of a slant that you will get something new out of this. So you're just trying to punk the readers. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> Angel, I believe you're a guy who likes to write to music. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what's the soundtrack for Hell Chose Me versus, say, a Blackie Jaguar novella? Hell Chose Me uh, was a lot of, I'd say, hard rock. I went everywhere with hardcore from there. I think I listened to a lot of Huskadoo. I listened to a lot of Faith No More, uh, Every Time I Die, guys like that, and even some like weirder off stuff. Because the, the book itself is is so heavily inspired by a lot of my own running around in the Bronx and just some people I've met. I kind of wanted to reflect that bizarre musical eclectic thing about me from when I was you know my twenties and in, in that during that time. In all of your books, I think there's a unifying uh, humor that uh, we've already established is a very dark humor. How do you sort of balance the brutal stuff that you write about with a, a pretty dark uh, but pretty consistent sense of humor? I think a lot of that comes down to just um, where I'm from. That gallows humor is, you know, it's almost like a survival mechanism. Most of the times in my life when I've been in a really dark place, more often than not, somebody's going to crack wise. So I, I kind of play with that hand in hand because I think a lot of these crime stories lend themselves to that because you've got people doing horrific things in desperate situations. And more often than not, you're going to try to rationalize it and fix your brain up. And jokes kind of are a place to go for that. We're almost done here, but uh, I've, one of my favorite little uh, humor tropes that happens is is the the good one liner after the kill. Are, are you a fan of like that sort of Schwarzenegger? Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, stick around. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a, a a good exit line to uh, to end the interview on? <laughs> I guess my go to would just be, "I'm so sorry." <laughs> it's mostly. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just murdered you. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> if we had to go all the way, I'd just get hammy and just, you know, do that little like shoulder shrug and we'll have a little bit of like pathetic trumpet music playing like, bah, 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 bah. like oh, oops. That, that's my action hero. It's just pathetic and 80s and campy as hell. <laughs> Eric, cue the trumpet music. <laughs> <laughs>
You know, as long as we're endorsing other crime fiction podcasts, Angel has one of his own called The Bastard Title, where he has in-depth conversations with a single author per episode. It's definitely something fans of this show should check out. Well, Steve, I think we've given people some excellent suggestions for their next read. So what did we learn this time? Sam Gailey taught us that he would be a lousy rock star, mostly because he couldn't even smash a TV. <laughs> well, Jessica Berry taught us if you're going to start writing crime fiction, you'd better change your name. And now we know what Angel Cologne will say when he murders us. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Special thanks to our sponsor, Prospect Park Books. Visit prospectparkbooks.com for a great selection of titles in crime fiction and beyond. You can follow us on Twitter at WriterTypes and find us on Facebook. Please subscribe to the show, and while you're there, feel free to leave us a review. As always, the show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.